Hey, it's Bill Simmons. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know about TheRinger.com, but I wanted to tell you about it anyway. It is sports. It is pop culture. It's tech. It's a little bit of national affairs. It's podcast. It's videos. It's multimedia. It's growing. We've only been around for a few months. We are building something special. Check it out. TheRinger.com. Start your day with it. Finish your day with it. Read it during the day. Do whatever you want. But read it. Check it out. TheRinger.com. And follow us at Twitter at Ringer. Follow us at Facebook.com slash Ringer. And now, without further ado, The Ringer MLB Show. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. Joined, as always, by my fellow Ringer writer, Michael Bauman. Michael, good day. Good day. That was an odd greeting. Yeah, well, good day is like a two-way player. can be both hello and goodbye. It's like aloha. All right, so we are bursting with quality content today, so there's no time for a preamble to this podcast. Today is the official Vin Scully Appreciation Day. Not that that makes it much different from every other day. Yeah, it makes it Friday. (laughs) Right. And later in this episode, we will be talking to Dodgers broadcaster Joe Davis, who is in his rookie year doing play-by-play for the Dodgers, and we'll be picking up where Vin leaves off next season. But before that, we're going to talk to a recently retired big leaguer. That all sound acceptable to you, Mr. Bowman? Yeah, I look forward to attempting to break the record for most mentions of the word red ass in (laughs) a baseball podcast. Yeah, well, speaking of which, I'm going to start this segment the way a third grader starts a book report, by quoting the dictionary definition of a word we are going to talk about. This comes from the Dixon Baseball Dictionary. And it is a definition of the word red ass, which in baseball dates back to at least the 20s or 30s. And the definition is a tough, angry, intense player, a player who plays hard, a raging competitor who hates to lose. And our guest today probably wouldn't have considered himself a red ass. Is that right? Dan Heron, who pitched in the majors for 13 years and uh, wrapped up a long, successful career last year. Thanks for joining us. Are you a, a red ass or no? I would say that I'm not a red ass. I, I, um, most of the time I was pretty calm and collected on the mound, whether things were going really well or, you know, things were going bad. I would yeah. try to pretty much uh, maintain an even keel. I thought it was best for myself. Uh-huh. So we wanted to talk about this because there was a, a bit of a dust up, didn't quite graduate to a brawl between Madison Bumgarner and and Yasiel Puig, it was like round three between those two players earlier this year, and it wasn't totally clear what happened exactly. Each of the players thought that the other guy was saying something or looking at him the wrong way, and so it got into a a confrontation. And Tim Brown, who's a a good writer for Yahoo, wrote after this, there's a not-so-fine line between being a red-ass competitor and what Madison Bumgarner has become, that being a thin-skinned wannabe bully whose efforts to police the game are tiresome. And, you know, we don't have to talk about Bumgarner specifically. I don't know whether you have an opinion on Bumgarner specifically, but I am interested in that line between red-ass and something that goes beyond that. So I guess where did you sort of draw that line as as a player, or are players very aware of that line in their teammates or in opposing players? Yeah, I mean, I think that first, uh, getting back to a couple of nights ago with the Bumgarner and, and Puig thing, I mean, obviously they have a, uh, you know, they've had a few dust-ups, but 
I think that after the fact, I would I would think that in the clubhouse after the game, once uh, Bumgarner cooled down, once he got around his teammates, I think that he would almost realize kind of uh, you know how out of line he was. Maybe I mean not that he was doing something that absurd, but I mean you know he definitely is the one that was kind of instigating the whole thing. And at this point in the season, for their team's sake, it was definitely the wrong thing to do. So I would think that. You know, he seems like he knows, you know, he's been around for a while. He's pitching some big games that he should probably understand uh, how valuable um, him being out there uh, for that eighth inning of that game was. Uh, whether that was the reason he came out or not, I don't, not 100% sure. But, you know, with regards to him, I would say that I think after the game, his teammates probably would let him know and he would probably realize kind of how stupid it was. And that's that's something that I'm interested in in terms of red assery. Um, you know, in, in hockey, this is a, a thing that guys who sort of play on the edge will sometimes get talked to by their teammates who don't want to fight the other guy's goon as a result. And baseball fights less frequently turn into to literal fights. But if you've got a real red ass teammate who's, you know, a repeat offender uh, with this sort of thing, does he get talked to? Like, you know, don't make us all run in from the bullpen. You know, this is annoying. You're, you know, you're taking us out of our out of our groove. Well, I think that I think an easy way to explain it would be that I played on the Dodgers and I played with with Puig and I was a part of several uh, times where the bench is cleared. Nothing really happened. But so I kind of witnessed it firsthand from from him and definitely after the fact a lot a lot of the teammates would come up to him and and tell him that he's got to settle down and um you know what he did was wrong so i think the feeling in the dugout like you said uh, a lot of times is you know when a guy you know say it would be he you know pimping a fly ball or pimping what he thought would be a home run and it hits off the top of the wall and then he gets thrown out at second you know those are the kind of things that that would piss his own team off and you know, even pimping home runs and, you know, the, we could see that the other team was mad and, and then we knew that oh, they're going to throw, then, you know, he, he, his actions of pimping a home run or doing something stupid can, you know, cost someone else on the team to get thrown at. So that's, I think when those sort of things happen, when you do things that maybe can cost other players getting thrown at, that's when a lot of internal conflict happens in the clubhouse, uh, in the dugout, because players get frustrated. And how much does the player's status matter? Because, you know, Bumgarner, he's 27. He's been in the game for a while. He's the best pitcher on the team. He's been a postseason hero, all of that. So maybe there's no one who really can go up to Bumgarner and say, act differently because he's he's the leader. Well, it kind of gets into like the whole unwritten rules thing. And I think status definitely plays. I mean, even just, you know, for, for myself, uh, I've given up, I gave up a, a fair share of homers and uh, you know, if I give up a homer to David Ortiz and he watches it and takes a minute to run around the bases, I don't really mind that. I feel like he's kind of earned that and, uh, you know, he's hit a bunch and this is just what he does. But what frustrated me as as a pitcher was when, you know, I got even last year I was pitching for the Marlins and Junior Lake, I think it was, and he had he had hit a home run and he uh, was rounding third base and he did the sign like to our dugout where he put his finger up to his mouth, like, be quiet, like, shh. And that, that, I mean, even, even myself who had given up 300 or 400 home runs, that would get, that, that gets under my skin. So, and it got under our team skin and it got, and you could see the Cubs players were, were pissed off at him. 
So that's what I would say. A lot of times things police itself inside the clubhouse. And where do you think a guy who who's like really aggro and really intense like this, you know, where does that red assery come from a lot of the time? Is Are there different kinds of red ass? Um, I would say some of it is it could be even like fake a little bit and just a persona that somebody wants to wants people to see them as. But I mean, there's there's a few guys that, you know, that you can get under their skin quickly, you know, as a pitcher throwing inside on guys. If maybe I threw a couple pitches up and in on a guy, I knew I could kind of get under a guy's skin, maybe use that against them. So I think that there's there's really not as many as you would think. There's maybe one or two on every team that that, uh, you know, would I would consider a red ass. But I think it's I think it's actually less than than people would think. And just sort of as a follow-up, that was something else that that I was interested in is like, are there guys that you know that, you know, you can get in their head or, or get them on tilt or, you know, somebody barks at them in the first inning, it's going to screw them up for the next five. And is that something that you try to do actively or try to, you know, save for big moments maybe? Uh, I would try to do that actively. I mean, un- unfortunately, especially toward the latter part of my career, it wasn't a matter of I wasn't really able to drop anyone and feel that good about it. So, but there was guys that you can make uncomfortable uh, on the inside part of the plate. Guys that if you go in there once or twice, you could even see them move in the box, or you could see maybe their front foot would leak out to to try to get to a pitch. If a if a hitter would think, "Oh man, this guy's really trying to pound me in," or this guy's trying to send a message, he's going to go back in. I think guys will end up cheating a little bit inside, and that's where I would be able to use you know something soft down and away or um, you know something like that and there was i think in one of Bumgarner's many previous incidents i think it was the will myers one he was quoted after the game as saying i just wanted to be mad for a second so is it sort of a a motivational tool like once a guy gets on the field he transforms into a red ass and you know maybe if you you catch him at a different moment He's just a, a normal laid back seeming guy, but it's kind of a, a way to fire yourself up. I think so. I think, you know, a lot of pitchers want to go out there and seem, you know, like the super tough guy, super, you know, energetic, wearing their emotions on their sleeves. And I think a lot of that is, like I said, kind of before where it's a little bit contrived, a little bit made up. So that's just what they want to express out there to the other team or to their own team. Like they're really into this game or they're, you know, super hyped for this hitter or something like that. I think in, in Bumgarner's sake, honestly, I, I think on the field he has that little quirk where, you know, he'll stare guys down or he doesn't like guys, uh, you know, pimping home runs or whatever. But, again, when I played for L.A., uh, a lot of guys, even like Clayton, I knew, talked to him quite a bit and said only good stuff about him. So I think it's, you know, he they have a persona on the field and, they seem like this, you know, crazy competitive red ass, but then, you know, off the field, they're pretty normal. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And you were at the center of one of these beanball wars or unwritten rules controversies just about a year ago when uh, you threw a pitch that hit Matt Holiday in the helmet and then you came out of the game and then there was a, you know, I, I think it was uh, Matt Belisle threw at Anthony Rizzo in kind of reprisal, and then he was tossed from the game because the benches had been warned, and then there was sort of a war of words after the game with Joe Madden going after the Cardinals and the way they played the game. So can you kind of take us inside the, the anatomy of this moment? <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that you did not mean to hit Matt Holiday in the helmet. No, I did not mean to hit him in the helmet. For that particular game... It was a Cubs Cardinals game, first of all, so it's it was pretty intense. Yeah. Um, 
it was i believe it it was in september uh it was you yeah. know what's what's kind of sad is i faced matt holiday i mean going back man probably 10 years and the last pitch i ever threw to him i nailed him right <laughs> in the head which kind of sucked but yeah. he hit plenty of home runs off me so i don't feel that bad but um no yeah you know that was one of the things where uh, i had hit him and it was obviously an accident um the cardinals bench was going absolutely crazy just yelling at me from the bench mother effing me and doing saying all this stuff and uh it's kind of a situation honestly i was on the mound and i didn't want to walk up to the hitter because that sometimes can seem like a sign of disrespect where maybe the other the other bench wouldn't like me approaching their hitter i think that Joe Madden was frustrated after the game with them hitting Rizzo because me hitting Holiday was so obviously unintentional. Um, you know, it was a pitch that got away. And, you know, the other the excuse from any side, you know, any other side is they always say, well, if you can't throw a fastball inside and you can't you can't do it without hitting your location, then don't do it. Well, you know, I I am pretty good. My control was pretty good my whole career, and last year it was just fine. And it was honestly just the pitch that got away. I I remember right before I threw that pitch, actually, uh, I thought to myself because it was a big situation. I said it's a fastball inside, and if I'm gonna miss, I need to miss inside. I can't miss over the plate. So I'm gonna start it on the black, and I'm gonna try to run it in a few inches. Well, unfortunately, I started in a few inches. I was so focused on getting it inside that it got away. So. Yeah, those those times suck because then the you know the other team thinks they really think I did it on purpose, so I feel bad. But uh, you know, the the worst part for me was Rizzo getting hit and the possibility of injury. What if they hit him in the finger? What if they hit him in the wrist? They break his wrist. It's September. He's out. So you know, a lot of things were go- were going through my head. So I wonder about that because I mean, why is it the automatic conclusion that the other team thinks you were trying to do that intentionally? If you think it through, I mean, you had guys on base, I think, at the time, and I did. Yes, for, for the most part, you know, people are not trying to headhunt. So you know, you would think that. Well, just think it through logically. He's probably not trying to hit him, and if he is trying to hit him, he's probably not trying to hit him in the head. And yet there is that kind of automatic reaction. And and you mentioned how, you know, you can't kind of just walk up to the hitter and say, I'm sorry or something, which just seems yes. like the, a very logical thing to do if you had an accident. Yeah. But you can't because that might be misconstrued and that might make the problem even worse. So just so much of it seems like, you know, everyone's sort of on the same page about what the framework is and what the right behavior is. And yet there is so much misunderstanding in these specific instances absolutely and the the, like i said before the excuse is always well if you can't throw the pitch inside effectively without hitting someone in the head then don't throw it well you know i wasn't trying to do that but you know uh, and then a lot of times if the role is reversed say it was a cardinals pitcher and they hit a guy on the head and then our dugout would be screaming at them and they would be apologizing and they after the game mike Matheny would be saying hey what what did joe madden talk you know would they really think we're going to try to hit him in the, you know, it's, it's nonstop. It just would go back and forth. And I think, I really think Joe Madden did a, a great job, like diffusing those situations. You know, in my few months over there, he never directed any, anyone to, to hit any, hit anybody on purpose. And, you know, a lot of times earlier in, earlier in my career, I had times where I'd, I wasn't necessarily a rookie, just up and coming. And there was times where I was ordered to hit someone. And this is kind of, I mean, this is back 15 years ago, probably 14 years ago. Uh, early 2000s and you know whether it be a manager a coach a veteran player and they'd tell me when this guy comes up you hit him and as a I was a 21 22 year old guy and an older guy's telling me this of course I'll hit him and 
there was actually a, a time back in the day where I, I did that. I would I hit a guy on purpose, and the team was pretty happy that I had done it. And we were on the flight flying out of the city, and there was a particular person that came up and gave me a blank check to to write to Major League Baseball when I got fined. So that was pretty cool. You know, when you get into those situations, like a lot of this is about threat gestures and pride and and stuff like that. You know making sure that that they can't hit our players with impunity. You know, do you have mixed feelings when you go out there and you you know that honor says that you have to hit this guy, you know, you want to make make it look good without actually hurting him, you know, how does how does all that sort of mix together emotionally on the mound? Yeah, I I hit very few few people on purpose. I had a on a Twitter rant I about a year ago or 8 months ago I had mentioned that I'd hit 5 to 7 people I think on purpose and that's probably about accurate, but yeah, you know, even uh, it, it's it's difficult for me when I was ordered to hit someone or when I thought in my mind, uh, you know, when this guy comes up if there's an open base I'm going to hit this guy. Man, my adrenaline would really get going and I I mean I'd get butterflies and, and hitting someone is actually re- a lot harder than you would think. Your, your mind is so focused on throwing to home plate and throwing to, you know, I'm throwing to a few inches inside, a few inches outside and to set your sights completely into the batter's box and, you know, look at somebody and actually throw at them is really difficult to hit someone. Um, I've missed many times and, you know, then that's when it gets to start looking bad is when, you know, you miss with one inside and the guy backs away and you miss a little further inside and he backs away and then you, you hit him and then it looks really bad. So generally it's it's good to hit him on the first try. It looks the best. Uh-huh. And you generally seem like a rational guy, a skeptical guy. You'd like to think about the way things work and kind of question the way that they've always worked in the past. Maybe that's not a great reason to keep doing them the same way. So when you get to the majors and you learn about unwritten rules or you you learn about them as you come up, do you have good examples of ones that just kind of boggled your mind or or instances where you just couldn't understand what everyone was upset about and if it were up to you, you you just wouldn't have made a big deal about it? Well, it's kind of hard to, you know, the, the most confusing ones for me were always, like we had talked about, just when is right to hit someone, when is when is it wrong to hit someone. That was always the most difficult one for me to understand coming up. It was generally ordered to me um, coming up, but, you know, it's it's hard. I, like a funnier one I thought of what, what was kind of, I, I don't know, I thought it was kind of funny, but so I would say about 10 years ago, I was pitching for, I think, the Diamondbacks. And I was actually hitting and I hit a base hit into right field and the right fielder tried to throw me out at first base. <laughs> and I thought back then the, that was a sign, that was a sign of disrespect. That was, you're trying to make me look bad. You're trying to clown me. And actually I remember who it was. I just remembered it. Actually, it was Brad Hopp and <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he was, he was playing right field for the Rockies in Coors Field and I smoked a ball to right. And this, luckily, this was in probably 2008 or something like that. And I was safe at first, barely. And I <laughs> and I told myself, I, actually, I hit first base and I looked in the outfield and I gave him kind of the head head nod, like, okay, all right. And I remember I was pretty good back then in 2000 and 2008 too. So I, I remember I thinking to myself, okay, when he comes up, I'll you know I'll show him something. And then he had come up to bat and I I pretty sure i had i didn't hit him but i like the first pitch i threw you know way up and in and and dropped him 
And I was like, okay, that, that felt pretty good. And I got my point across. I felt, I felt, you know, kind of badass. but what, what's kind of funny about the story is I think it was two years ago where I, I had actually gotten thrown out at first base twice on base hits to right field. So if you fast forward, <laughs> if you fast forward like five or six years, it kind of graduated from like an unwritten rule of trying to show up a pitcher and throw him out of first base to, it became like an actual strategy where the right fielder would play a little bit shallow. And essentially by, by last year, if I hit like a one hopper into right field, it was pretty much the same as hitting a ground ball to shortstop. I was getting thrown out of first base. So I would purposely be trying to pull the ball or hit the ball up the middle. I don't know why Brad Hopp's involvement in that story <laughs> made, made me laugh, but it did. They were good. Those, you know, those I came up with a bunch of the Rockies, and it was like uh, Corey Sullivan, Brad Hopp, Garrett Atkins, that group of, that group of Rockies, uh, Ryan Spielborgs, that group of Rockies was really good, really tough um, coming up through the minors with those guys. They were really good. So the whole like choreography of of uh, projecting this this aggressiveness or even throwing at a guy, it just seems like it's a lot of you know nobody actually wants to fight or nobody actually wants to to hit a batter or, you know throw at his head except maybe you know maybe there's that one guy who wants it a little too much and it just seems like very game theoryish like you got to get up to the line without crossing it and it feels like it, if it's communicated incorrectly then then that's when everything sort of spills over. Yeah, it's almost seen, seems like a it's like a sign of protection for your own team. So it didn't happen, but like say if I was pitching and and Rizzo got last year and Rizzo got hit Anthony Rizzo and say you know a few innings later uh, Ryan Braun comes up to bat and I smoke him in the back and when I come in the dugout the team senses that that sort of protection that you're that you're giving to your own team and that feels good for a pitcher to have. It felt good for me, I should say, you know, knowing that the other eight guys on the field knew that they had their backs, that if they were going to get hit, I would I would protect them. It's, and that was kind of that's how I felt. I don't know if everyone felt, felt that way, but that's how I felt. How much of it is just the heightened emotions and, and the stage and the stakes of everything that might be hard to understand at home? Because, you know, in my job no one is really watching me i'm just sitting alone in a room i'm writing i'm talking to someone and recording it that's that's it whereas if you're a major league baseball player you're constantly under the microscope and people are writing about you and talking about you and you're performing in front of thousands hundreds of thousands of fans i mean does that just yeah. amp yeah. everything up in a way that's hard for people like me to understand see i wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that that a pitcher would do it because the stakes were so high in a game. I would do. I would say a pitcher would more do it just for like the optics of it, just to how it would be perceived by his team, how it would be perceived by the opposing team. I think not only like I had said before, where your own team knows that you know if if they get hit, that you're going to hit someone back. That your own team is going to like that. And also on the flip side. If you get a reputation uh, as a guy who's going to throw at someone, say, a, a, you know, like, I don't I don't even know who has that reputation now, but the opposing team would know that if, you know, if that pitcher hits someone, they know that one of their, their own guys is going to get hit. So I don't know. Pitchers get a reputation of, of another guy that comes to mind. He also isn't playing anymore, but. I used to always think it was hilarious that, well, Vicente Badillo, didn't he, I think he... God, he threw at everybody. <laughs> he threw at everyone, but I think he especially hated like Mark Teixeira or something. But <laughs> No, what was funny was there was a year I was in Oakland and 
uh, someone had brought it to my attention that a lot of times Vicente Padilla would, when he got 3-0 on guys, he would just hit them so that he didn't walk them. It was, it didn't count as a walk. It would just be a, a hit batter. So I had noticed several times that year in 3-0 counts, he might have been pitching for the Rangers or something, and 3-0 counts, and boom, he'd hit the guy because he just didn't even want to walk him. He'd rather hit him. Yeah, he was uh, he was traded to from the Diamondbacks to the Phillies for Kurt Schilling. There was a lot of a lot of aggressiveness in, in that deal, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, you know, one one time as well, I I was on the A's and I I was uh, with Nick Swisher and I had told him and. Uh, I said, man, Vicente Padilla, he's hit you so many times. Like, if you don't, if he hits you again, I mean, he's going to keep hitting you until you go out there, until you, you know, try to fight him. And we had kind of got into it. I think he thought that I was thinking, like, oh, he was being soft by not going and fighting. And sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, it happened. And Padilla hit him. I don't know if it was on the 3 0 count. Padilla hit him. And, and Swisher went out and got him, and I, I, I couldn't believe that he actually did after we talked about You're it. You're perpetuating the problem. Yeah. The cycle, the cycle <laughs> Turning continues. Nick Swisher, of all people, into a... <laughs> that was in my younger days, you know. I was a little more, I was a little more uh, hot-headed or red-assy back then. So <laughs> how long does it take to sort of figure all this out? You know, not only who's going to throw at who, but like when you throw at a guy, when you stare him down, when you charge the mound, like is this something that that you accumulate this knowledge of, you know, coming up through college ball in the minor leagues, or do you have to sort of learn it all in the big leagues? I, th- I learned it mostly in the big leagues. You could kind of get a sense of, well, I think that there's a f- certain few guys around the league that you know that if you hit them, there's a chance that they'll come and get you. And I think that 90, probably 95% of the time, um, you know, the bench is clear, nothing really happens anyway. So I think, uh, just like a reputation for a guy that that might go out, if you hit him, he might go out and charge the mound. Uh, same way, pitcher gets a reputation as a guy that you know if you if something goes goes on in this game, he's going to be a guy that's gonna that's gonna hit you. So reputations get around, and you know there there would be certain hitters that I would face that I knew you know if I I've or maybe if I've hit a guy before or hit a guy once or twice before, and I knew, man, if I hit this guy again, he might come and get me. So. I might have been, you know, more likely to stay away for that particular hitter. Do you think things will ever get to the point where, you know, former podcast guest John Baker, who you you played against, uh, you know, he has said that his thinking on this has evolved now, and maybe it's just something that happens as you get older, but he kind of thinks that anything goes or anything should go and you live and let live and, you know, there's no such thing as an unwritten rule or there shouldn't be that, that if you can take advantage of the other team in some way that you should do that and the other team should understand that uh, they should have played better or whatever. They should have kept themselves out of that situation. I, I don't know whether we're evolving toward that eventually. I don't know whether we'll ever get there or whether just every successive generation of player will pick up the previous generation's perceptions about all of these things. And 200 years from now, people will still be charging the mound and throwing at each other. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that I feel like uh, there's been less and less incidents or brawls. Um, I just think that the game has changed quite a bit. And I realize this I personally realized this, especially the last few years pitching. I wasn't, I wouldn't get as mad at guys, you know, pimping home runs or, you know, one thing that also made me mad was when I was especially younger was, you know, say on a 2-0 pitch, I would throw it and the guy would pop up and he'd be, you know, pissed off running down the line and cursing at himself and throwing his bat. And I always thought like, 
so he expected this guy expected to hit a home run or hit something off me like you, you're not that good <laughs> and that, as i got later in my career a guy would pop up and he'd be cursing down the line and i'd be you know i'd be thinking to myself well you know i'd just be happy that i got the out because that's all that really matters and but i think the game really has has changed and it is evolving and I think everyone has to kind of, I think the, especially the older players see the way the, the game has changed and kind of swallowed their pride a little bit. And, you know, I think the fans enjoy, you know, some of the, the, you know, the way guys, you know, the Bryce Harpers of the world and how they hit home runs and flip bats and their home team goes crazy. And when it all comes down to it, I mean, really it's all for the fans. And the, the only reason that we get to, we got to do this is, is because of the fans. So, I think that it's just the way the game is going and more and more people are realizing it. So as you know, I'm something of a connoisseur of, of baseball fights via YouTube. And there's one thing that I've got my, my favorites, like the, the Mexico Canada brawl and the, the world baseball classic. But I feel like most of the time it gets diffused relatively quickly. And we saw this the other night, you know, Puig and, and Bumgarner are both big guys and they were both getting in each other's face, but immediately like Hunter Pence comes in and Kenley Jansen comes in and they get their own guys and keep any punches from actually being thrown. Is there like, if you've got a, a hothead on your team, particularly a big guy, is there someone whose responsibility it is to go get, you know, I'm not going to say Carlos Quentin, but you know, to get Carlos Quentin off the, you know, make sure he doesn't hurt himself or others. Oh man, that definitely wouldn't be me. I would, I would be the guy saying, "I'll take uh, Alexi Amarista." <laughs> but no, no. I mean, of course, you get in the brawls. Those things happen on the field. Both benches clear, and yeah, everyone goes crazy when when they're being held back. Of course, and including myself, I've been held back many times, and thanks, and I was happy to be held back. But man, I would run my mouth pretty good when I was being held back. So, um, I just think that you get out there, and both teams are kind of. I would say of the 25 guys on each team, 22 guys are just trying to break it up. And you got the few guys that are, you know, really loud or really want to get something going. And most of the time what happens is, like I said before, 95% of the time there's nothing happens because there's so many more guys that are holding people back than are actually wanting to fight. So unless that person got to break loose or unless they're going to instigate it by charging the mound, that's the only chance that punches are being thrown. Very rarely would benches clear without punches at first and and something else happens because once it gets to that point everyone's being held back but i do enjoy the old brawls too i think wasn't there a pasquale perez one or there was the i'm sure there was there was an old one in atlanta i forget which one there was a a great one in atlanta against the phillies in the 90s with with paul bird and john smoltz that i keep going back to but yeah the the World Baseball Classic one happened because the guy who started it was Tyson Gillies, who was too fast for anybody to to catch and hold back, and that's how <laughs> it all all devolved into mayhem. When we uh, in the Atlanta Braves visiting clubhouse, they have video of, and I thought it was Pasquale Perez, but I don't, I don't, I'm not 100 percent sure. The guy had a sweet uh, Jerry curl. I remember that, but <laughs> it does that, sound that, like that sounds like Pasquale <laughs> Perez to me. But um, no, there was a there was like a DVD um, in the visiting clubhouse, and and uh, it got turned on at least once a year because it was like a 20 minute like inning after inning, uh, things escalated and it got pretty crazy. Where guys, people from the from the stands were coming on the field and it, it was it was nuts so when i hear people players talk about all of this emotion and the threat of violence and the macho stuff and the competition and then i've heard you talk about the anxiety that goes into being a major league player and just 
you know, how worried you would be before a start, even during starts at times. Was it fun to be a baseball player? <laughs> I guess is, <laughs> is my question because, you know, obviously it's a high status job. It's a high paying job. I'm not saying it's not worth it and not that you or anyone else is complaining about it, but you know, everyone thinks of it as just, oh, it's my childhood dream. I'll just go out and play baseball. But there is, it, it just sounds emotionally and psychologically draining, at least depending on your makeup, not to mention physically and, you know, all the ailments and injuries that you accumulate all over the years. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, are you kind of skipping around and whistling and saying, <laughs> I'm a major league baseball player? Or is it just, man, this is, this is kind of rough? That's a great question. And yet, like you said, I had gotten into it. You know, I've talked about the anxiety of playing baseball before, but more specifically, I would say, did I have fun playing baseball? Of course I had fun uh, playing baseball. I mean, I think though there's like, there is nothing better for me. There's no better feeling than winning a game for my team, pitching well and say getting on the team playing and flying somewhere else and being able to enjoy that with the guys or, you know, after the game, high-fiving in the clubhouse with the music on and enjoying a cold beer and just getting really to savor that. And I especially did that later in my career where I really, really enjoyed every win I got because I knew, you know, things were coming to an end or I, I knew I was more appreciative of, of pitching well because I had struggled so much too. And on the flip side, struggling in the, in the major leagues is very, very difficult. I think that, you know, fans maybe quite don't understand that as much as I think they, they should, but I don't know if everyone is really like me. I don't know if everyone, um, you know, if they lose a game, I know a lot of pitchers that would lose a game. They'd be totally fine after the game. So maybe, uh, you know, just for my, my own sake, um, I just, I took losing really hard and I enjoyed the winning. So the baseball season was an emotional, of course, physical, but an emotional roller coaster. And all I could say is there was no better feeling than winning. And when I, there's no worse feeling than, you know, having a few bad starts in a row, letting down your team, being embarrassed to go to the field, couldn't turn on, you know, any ESPN, baseball tonight, MLB network. I didn't want to hear my name. I didn't want to see my name. I couldn't turn on Twitter. I didn't want to turn on anything because I didn't want to have to read about myself. So when things are going bad on the flip side, it is, it is a really lonely place. And if you have two or three bad games in a row, that's two weeks of being miserable. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I start feeling okay leading up to the start after my bullpen and I start studying hitters and then it's the day before the start and I start, you know, psyching myself into, you know, really want to get out there and pitch again. But then you do all that work and if it doesn't go well, it's, you know, it's kind of a whole rinse and repeat type thing. And so struggling really sucks and winning, there's no better feeling. So that doesn't really answer the question, but I did, I had fun. Thankfully, I, I was able to retire on uh, somewhat of a high note and, mm -hmm. and pitch pretty well my last year. Because um, there was a few rough times the last few years, so I was happy with the way it ended, and I I absolutely miss baseball though for sure. And sort of to to go along with that, uh, you know, you mentioned Joe Madden earlier, and uh, I know you told Jonah about playing for Davey Johnson. You played for Larusa and Mike Sosha as well. So what did playing for all these sort of different styles of manager teach you about chemistry and creating a sort of a good professional work environment? Well, I think. Man, I've played for so many managers, and it's what was really crazy is just how unique different managers were. What's crazy is I actually played for two front office people that got brought in. Last year, I played for Dan Jennings for mm -hmm. the Marlins, 
And that was one of the most difficult situations um, I had ever been a part of. Um, I had been a part of the A.J. Hinch's first go around in in Arizona when he got brought in. A lot of people kind of forget that because he's had so much success in Houston. And he seems, uh, you know, like such a forward thinker. And he really is. He was kind of ahead of his time, actually, in Arizona. And people didn't really realize it. And then uh, he got kind of he got a bad rap and thankfully he got another job and was able to prove how good of a person he was. But, you know, I would just say that it's, it was just the different managers. It's, it was really fun for me to to kind of see how different managers approach uh, games, um, especially last year, uh, you know, was really weird. I went from the extreme. I got I, I started off with Mike Redman. He gets fired, going to a, a toxic situation, I would say, with Dan Jennings, where you know the players were very, very frustrated having the general manager come down and put on a uniform that was really uncomfortable, to say the least. And then I get traded to a team with probably you know the coolest manager, especially I mean, for how old he is and how well he understands his players and how fun he made it every day. There was definitely a looseness about the Cubs that I've. Uh, I've never been a part of with all probably 15 managers or 12 or 15 managers I played for. So I would say yeah, Joe Madden was probably the funnest and most relaxed atmosphere I've ever had last year. And last question, you you mentioned the difference between Madden and Jennings. Was the awkwardness of the Jennings situation mostly that he was also the GM at the time or was it his lack of playing experience? Because, you know, of course it's a a big thing in baseball it's it's basically a prerequisite for the managerial job that you have to have played and Joe Madden never got above a ball so he played but not at that high a level so with someone like Jennings you know if he hadn't been the GM if he had been in some other capacity before but just hadn't had that player's background is that the main concern that you just worry that the manager won't understand his players because he hasn't been one? There's two concerns, I think, with the general manager becoming the manager. <laughs> yeah, that's first, a unique the, one, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, first, the first one is it's hard for a player to swallow seeing a guy that, you know, dressed up in a suit and you know he's a general manager and he's making decisions from the front office and he's watching the games up there. Seemingly is probably hasn't put on a uniform and... 30 40 years or something and then having him come into the dugout and it's just a really uncomfortable feeling having it's you know having like it's like your boss's boss mm-hmm. you know now now coming down and sitting in the dugout right and then the other the, i think the other thing that people don't realize too is that the players were frustrated a lot of times when a manager gets fired players are are pissed off and i mean you know sometimes they're not but i knew all the guys really liked mike redmond and I think a big thing is, so, you know, they put a general manager in as a manager and they want things to turn around and things were, weren't going well last year with the Marlins. And if they put Dan Jennings in as the, as the manager, as the field manager and things turn around, you end up making the Marlins look like geniuses for making that decision. And, you know, they, they look great. And it, maybe it was the manager that was the problem the whole time. Well, we were frustrated and, we didn't want to – it was almost a situation like if we did really well, we would prove the front office right that they should have – that they made the right move when everyone was pissed off at the front office for making the move. So I think a lot of people felt like that, and 
it just was a toxic situation. And I think even I, I really like Dan Jennings as a guy, honestly, and he was, it, it actually turned out to be okay. Um, but I think even he was, he would admit that he was overwhelmed mm-hmm. uh, to say the least at, you know, how fast the game goes and decision-making and preparation that goes into being a manager. So what if it wasn't the guy coming down from the skybox to to do that job? What if it was just someone who, you know, I don't know what his background is, but he's oh, not a Maybe player. a ringer writer. Who, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, just like, is it possible that uh, someone can do that job without having the Mike Redmond background of having been a player for years? Uh, just, you know, if it's not a weird situation where it was the guy who signed you is now also your manager or whatever, but just someone without the player's background, but has some people skills and some leadership skills. Could that work? Will we see that at some point? I think things are moving toward that. I don't know if it will go to the in the extreme. We're talking like a guy wearing a, a suit and having a desk in the corner <laughs> of the dugout maybe, but yeah. um, I think things are moving obviously more toward analytics and decisions are made based less on feelings or gut feelings. I think that managers want to please their bosses now and show that they're embracing the numbers and making the correct baseball decisions, not just, like I said, not just gut feelings. So I think that that seems to be happening all around baseball. And I think that's the way things are moving, even with the the general managers being hired. I think that the quote-unquote old-school way of, of playing baseball and, and decision-making is on its way out. And I think that if you don't embrace the new stuff, you're gonna there won't be any room for you. So I think people more and more are embracing it, and it, it'll be the norm. I mean, it's already pretty much, you know, with all the, the websites and, you know, baseball prospectus and all the shows, everyone, everything, you know, is so numbers-driven now, and that's the way it's going. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you are not following Dan Heron on Twitter, you should be. He's at iThrow88, which is not only a great handle, but great tweets, too. He picks his spots. You you make them count. It's it's about a, a tweet a week, but they're all at a high level. It's good quality control. So people yes. should uh, follow Dan on there. And thank you for coming on. It's uh, It's nice when a former player hits the public sphere and we find out how interesting a person he is now and now that he can talk about things all the time and doesn't have to worry about hitting people with baseballs. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I enjoy the show. I uh, enjoy listening to it. So thanks for having me on. All right, before we talk to Joe Davis, heir to the Dodgers play-by-play job, let me take a moment to tell you about our sponsor for today, SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites wants to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. Postseason games are coming up. You might want to tear yourself away from the couch and go see some players in person. Got a couple concerts on my schedule. Two of my favorite bands, Teenage Fan Club and Sloan, playing the Bowery Ballroom just a few days apart in October. Tickets are available on SeatGeek. And everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. With SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That is the desire that drives SeatGeek every day. 
That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code RINGERMLB, and then SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. All right, the Ringer MLB show rolls on. If you have the vocal cords of a mortal man, it is always a risk to bring on a professional play-by-play man on your podcast to remind all the listeners what an actual nice broadcast quality voice sounds like. But we are taking that risk today because we want to talk to Joe Davis, who's in his first year as a play-by-play man for the Dodgers. He's been a broadcaster for ESPN, for Fox Sports. He's done multiple sports, but it's been Scully Appreciation Day, so it seems like an appropriate time to talk to the guy who'll be taking over for Vin next season. So, Joe, hey, how are you? Hi, guys. I'm doing great. How are you? All right. And and speaking of the broadcaster voice, because I'm always curious about this, what portion of the population is just ruled out from birth? from being a professional play-by-play person just because their voice is uh, scratchy or it's too high or it's too low. Well, to what extent us, can you yeah. yeah, I mean to what extent can you train yourself if you want to be a broadcaster but you don't have that sonorous mellifluous voice? Can you get there? Yeah, it's a good question. I would think that it would be a as far as the people that are ruled out, you know, kind of damned at birth. I would think that's a real small percentage uh-huh. because I, I think it's uh it's how you use whatever voice you're given. Um, and, you know, in my case, one of the things I did in college was an independent study with a theater professor hmm. who knew nothing about broadcasting, knew even less about sports, but knew a lot about voice for stage and how to project and everything. And so there are ways to train to be able to use whatever voice it is you're given. But, you, you know, you, you got what you got. It's just a matter of utilizing it. Yeah. Okay. So there's some hope for the rest of us. <laughs> so you've probably been asked about Vince Scully more than any other broadcaster has been asked about any other broadcaster in your year with the Dodgers. So sorry yeah. to pile on, but uh, no. I guess one question was would just be how much time have you been able to spend with him this year? Because I've heard you tell the story of how he left you a voicemail when you got the job and you have saved that voicemail as anyone would and will probably listen to it the Mm -hmm. rest of your life. And you talk to him then, but you've been doing the road games and he, for the most part, has been doing the home games. So to what extent have your paths crossed? Yeah, because of exactly what you said, our schedules being almost exactly opposite. We've not had many interactions. So there was that time you mentioned where he called the day before my hiring was announced and left the voicemail and my wife actually took that the recording of that voicemail after I told her man I wish there was a way that I could put this on a shelf or something have this to keep forever my birthday was the next week I I pulled uh, this little stuffed animal bear out of a bag with a Dodger jersey on it and I'm like oh cool a teddy bear for my 28th birthday Uh, and she's, she's like it's not just a teddy bear squeeze it and I squeezed it, and it played the voicemail. It has the voicemail up. But <laughs> anyways, so yeah, there was the interaction the day before the hiring. There was, in December, we were at a banquet together where he was the keynote speaker to begin the night, and then I kind of emceed the rest of the night. So he gave his opening address, 
And then he actually introduced me, which was, it was almost like it wasn't even real life. I had to peel myself off of the ground after he gave this grand introduction, the best introduction I've ever had. I had to somehow walk up there and take the podium from him. So that was incredible. And then opening day in San Diego, we were getting ready to take over the rest of the road trip. But Ben did opening day, even though it was on the road. And we got to say hello then. And then saw him the first time actually that I've made it to Dodger Stadium this year was this week, earlier this week for the Giants series. And we got to say hello, uh, take uh, take a few pictures together earlier this week. So it's been limited interactions, but those that I've had are, are certainly ones like I'm sure everybody else would say when they get a chance to visit with Ben that I'll always remember. Does that feeling wear off? Because it's not only that you're – going to work with Vin Scully, but you've got Jaime Harin, who's also a Ford C. Frick winner, and Fernando Valenzuela. And, like, these are big names in Dodger baseball. Like, I can't imagine having the self-confidence to feel like I fit in in a place like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's – you mentioned Jaime. Jaime is somebody who I have gotten to know really well because he's still doing all the road games. And I've told several people there is not a better human being in this world than Jaime Harine. And it's, you know, I've only been around for a few months now with the Dodgers. And he and Oral and Nomar and Charlie Steiner and Rick Monday and you name it. Those guys have gone out of their way to make me feel like I am one of them when I'm not. I mean, I, I don't belong in the same rooms as those guys, but they have made it feel like that's not the case that I'm on their level and you know that same thing with my wife who is going to move across the country from Michigan you know from the place where we're both from they've made her feel like she's family so it's just been an incredible experience so far and it's been because those guys have gone out of their way to make it that and so I know that you know you probably get the question oh what are you going to take away from Vin or how are you going to incorporate Vin style into your own and I know that his advice is not to do that, to, to be yourself and not try to copy anyone else. And so I guess the question then is just yeah. what what do you appreciate about him sort of technically just as a fellow broadcaster? Not that it's necessarily something you're going to mimic, but what is the, the most impressive part of his performance? I think on a basic level, it's the longevity and the the wearability because I think wearability is so huge for an everyday baseball broadcaster where really folks are inviting you into their homes every single night. And for Vin, it's not just wearing well over the course of a season or a few seasons or a decade. I mean, we're talking 67 years of people not being able to get enough of this guy. Think about that. If you have, if you know somebody for 67 years and they're in your house talking to you every day, how many people in world history would only get more and more you know, desirable as far as you wanting to hear them? I, I think it kind of tends to go the other way when you hear somebody that much. But somehow he's managed to not just broadcast for that long, but to be more and more loved every single year. So whatever quality it is that he has that has allowed him to do that over 67 years is just absolutely unmatched, incredible. And, and as far as on the air, it's the storytelling. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think there's a better storyteller in the world than ever has been, baseball broadcaster or not. The way that he weaves those stories in while still calling the game. And you know, I, I think that there is never going to be anybody that tells a story like him again. And there's also never going to be a structure like that on television again. 
where you have a platform. If you have that innate otherworldly ability, he has to tell the story. You know, outside of a one-man booth, it's hard to do that. So I, you're never going to see anybody that has this skill, and you're never going to see anybody on television that has the ability to try and have that skill just because I, I don't know that you'll ever see a solo act on TV again. Yeah, and I think that's that sort of plays into what we saw when a lot of other teams, you know, started replacing their first TV broadcaster. You know, we saw it with the, the Phillies and the Pirates and the Mariners. And the people who followed them tended to be very good, competent, professional television play-by-play guys and got a really nasty case of, you're not my real dad from from the fans. <laughs> you know, are you mm-hmm. worried about... I can't imagine, like, we talk about... Vin being a tough act to follow just from a broadcasting perspective, but you know, you're not America's grandfather. Are you worried about trying well, to fill that void? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I totally understand that the context around this job, that that's part of it, but I, I don't know that I could go into this and allow myself to worry about that because I think I'm, I'm screwed if I do that. And if I look at you know, trying to follow Vin as anything other than me just trying to do what I've always done as a broadcaster, I think I'd be setting myself up to fail, and I think I'd be doing an injustice to the people at home who, you know, they don't want to hear somebody try to be Ben. I get it that, you know, honestly, that in one year, the feedback has been more welcoming, more warm than I ever could have imagined. I expected there to be more negative responses just because I'm not Ben. Uh, I, I know that they'll be I'm prepared for more of that negativity, especially next year when it's you know the first year where it's me and it's not Vin. Uh, but I know that's part of the job. And you know, like I said, I just think that it'd be really, it'd be near impossible to succeed in the job if I was too hung up in that because it, it obviously is part of it. Yeah, I would think that in a sense there might even be more pressure if you were following a lesser luminary. You know, he's just such an icon that I don't think anyone's mm-hmm. going to be mad next year when you're yeah. talking and, you know, you're not telling firsthand stories from when you were in the Brooklyn Dodgers clubhouse. You know, <laughs> like, why isn't this guy telling yeah. stories about his conversations with Jackie Robinson? Like, no one expects that of right. anyone else in the world. So in that sense, you know, right. that's that's what I would be telling myself, at least in, in yeah, your position. It almost, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. It's almost like he's so much on his own level right. that even the most fanatical Vin fans hopefully understand that I'm not Vin, you know, and, and they're they're never going to have another Vin. It's almost like he's on such a, a pedestal that it'd be impossible for anybody to truly try and compare what they're hearing in 2017 to, to the greatest voice ever that they've heard for the last 67 years. So maybe that's wishful thinking, but I appreciate you looking at it that way. <laughs> And so you're one of the youngest broadcasters in the majors. So how do you kind of try to inject a little bit of your personality into the broadcast if you don't have, you know, 87 years of accumulated stories to tell? You just haven't had time to to experience those stories yet. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you want the the basics, just, you know, describe the game well and not get in the way. And I I think you're, you're there definitely. But how do you kind of take that next level and try to become an, an endearing character when you don't have that kind of lifelong experience yet? Right. I think the key to that, guys, is you mentioned injecting the personality. I, I don't think that you want to get into that. I think it's more allowing the personality. 
So, and that's something that I've had to work on over time. And I think it's something that every young broadcaster works with that allowing yourself to be yourself takes time. And especially, I can only speak for myself, but I know, especially for me, I was really early on in my career. And and there still are some of these tendencies really caught up on trying to be perfect with all the fundamentals of the play by play and nailing all the basics. And I still really take pride in nailing the basics. But early on in my career, I went so far with that that I didn't allow myself to have fun and I didn't allow myself to be me. You know, I, I'd like to think that I'm an okay guy to sit around and have a beer with. And, you know, the, I always had bosses at ESPN and at Fox encouraging me to be that guy on the air. But I don't think it's appropriate to look at it as trying to inject that because that's counterintuitive for me to, to one of my philosophies. And it's something that I've learned from Vin, and that is it's not about us. It's about the game. So you don't want to inject yourself necessarily, but you want to allow yourself to be you within the framework of that game. And over the course of a 162-game season, whoever you are, if you're allowing it, is going to come out. And I think if you if you try to inject, you're going to get exposed over the 162. So just allowing myself to be me, and hopefully I've done some of that this year. Fans have got to know me a little bit, but I, I think every year I'll, I'll allow myself to be myself more and more. I'm still learning how to do this well. I'm still trying to get better and better every time I go on. So hopefully there's more and more uh, me that seeps through uh, just from being more and more comfortable and allowing it to happen. And you said that one of Vince's greatest assets was his his ability as a storyteller, and part of that is just being around to you know go ice skating with Jackie Robinson. But just in your in your short time with the Dodgers, there's been a lot of interesting stories, a lot of interesting personalities. Is there one that that you think that you're going to be telling that story in the booth in 2080? <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, I I think we're watching. Clayton Kershaw, I think we're watching it as good of a pitcher as there's ever been. It's just, I mean, obviously I knew how special Clayton was from afar before I was doing Dodger games, but to be able to watch him every fifth day when he's healthy is just, it's a joy. It's a privilege to be able to watch him on his own level. I mean, that game in New York a couple weeks ago, his second start back from the DL, he comes back from two rain delays. I mean, that, that, like, that's the kind of story Vin would tell about somebody in you know, 1960 at this point. You, know, you, you never believe it. Two rain delays and then out it came. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that you know, slowly over time will develop those memories and those stories I'll be able to tell back. But yeah, that's going to take time. There's no substitute for time to be able to come up with a, the treasure trove of stories that Vin's accumulated. Now, Yasiel Puig is another one. I mean, he's a fascinating story to tell right now, and I think a lot of it will depend on what the next few years hold for Yasiel Puig. But, boy, there are plenty of stories to be able to tell about him down the road. He's a fascinating kind of legendary character, depending, again, on what happens moving forward. But the the iconic way that he broke in in 2013 for what seemingly is developing right now with him being – Spent to the minors and reports of him trying to be traded and, and the team doing all they can to trade him and it not happening and coming back up and helping the team win the division. So there are, like you guys said, I mean, already in my first year here, 
there are a couple of stories that I think have legs to be able to become ones that are worth telling long term. And do you kind of come from the Scully school of don't get too close to the players, be impartial? You know, how do you kind of balance that? Do you think there's value to going down to the clubhouse and talking to the guys and, you know, getting their perspective? Or would you rather sort of stay above the fray? Yeah, I, I totally think there's value in that. I mean, I, I was guilty, as many were, of developing a close relationship with A.J. Ellis. And, you know, I, I was closer to A.J. than I was any other player on the team. And I remember it happened and texting with Oral and saying, that's why you don't get close to the players. I was crushed. It was, you know, it's like, and that shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't allow yourself to get to that place with the players you're covering. Now, that said, there are going to be cases like that where you do just uh, have somebody who you who you connect with, and that happened with AJ. Um, for me, my philosophy, at least this first year, has been to just kind of try to stay out of the way and you know be around and be somebody that they recognize and they don't look at as this ghost that's just up there talking about them when he's never around. But at the same time, I've tried to you know, just stay out of the guy's way and let those relationships develop organically where, you know, every time they see me, they don't look at me as somebody who's trying to get a nugget or a quote. And I think hopefully playing the long game in those relationships will help. But yeah, there is, there is something to be said for keeping that professional distance. And it's much easier in the majors than it was in the minors for me, where, you know, I was packed onto these tiny buses with guys and, there are still guys that I'm I'm in contact with from the minors. Part of that too is that you know we were all 22 and 23, you know, all at the the same exact stages of our lives, all dreaming of the same thing in our own fields. But it's different in the majors. It's easier to keep that distance in the majors. So you mentioned the uniqueness of the one man booth. What happens if uh, Oral and Nomar are calling sick, and it's too late to get a replacement? And you're going solo. Is there is there just dead air? Are you sweating and pressing and trying to come up with stuff to say? How does that go? Do you think? You know what? My in the minors, I did three years like that, so uh-huh. I could do it. It's not going to be anything like Vin, just because nobody is. You know, if if it was like Vin, it would sound 100 percent like some kid trying to be Vin. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be like, wow, this guy's this guy's similar to Vin and his storytelling ability. It'd be, what the hell is this 28-year-old kid trying to do sounding like Vin Scully? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I could pull it off. It wouldn't be nearly, it wouldn't be close to anything like Vin does, but I wouldn't want to try to pull it off over a full season. I, you know, over a 162-game major league season, that it, it's a grind as it is, but to be solo without any analysts to lean on, that, that's tough. That impression was really good, though. You should yeah, definitely continue to break that out, you know, from time to time, even if you don't do the solo booth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, do you think that it's progress, the the expansion of the booth? Because some people will look at it and they'll lament the loss of that solo act. But obviously, there are cases where having those multiple perspectives and former players and maybe someone who's more analytically inclined who can chime in. I mean, there are booths where that works really well. So do you Mm -hmm. think that one or the other is fundamentally better or does it just all have to do with who the particular people are? I think it has as much to do with who you're asking that question as it does who the people are. And that's one of the frustrating things for people that are trying to climb the ladder in this business. And that is, it's so subjective. You know, one person may think 
broadcaster A is the best, and the other may think that they have no business having a job. And I think it's probably similar. Person A may think a one-man booth is the only way to go, and that may be because that's what they've grown up with, as so many in Los Angeles have. They don't know really anything other than that one-man Vince Scully booth. But person B, fan B, may really like the you know, the analytical approach that some analysts bring. They may like that Oral and Nomar and I are willing to talk a little bit more advanced stats than you may hear from Ben or you know a, an older broadcaster who hasn't necessarily embraced that and doesn't need to. You know, you know, Vin, Vin going on the air and trying to talk about exit velocity would be like me going on the air trying to talk about Jackie Robinson ice skating. You know, it's it's like it, that's not him. So he would never try to do that. But, you know, I think it's the, the kind of beauties in the eye of the beholder thing. Some people will like um, a bigger booth and some people will always prefer that one-man booth and invent storytelling. So I don't, I don't necessarily look at it as progress to a two-man booth or a three-man booth. It's just different, and it, it's where the industry is right now. Well, the cool thing is that because you are starting so young the way Vin did, you have the chance at least to, you know, if you uh, all you have to do is live a long time and not get fired, <laughs> and in 60 years or so, you can tell Vin Scully stories the way that Vin Scully can tell Red Barber stories, and you will be the yeah. living legend. So <laughs> just... Just hang around. That's all. That's all, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you can't follow Vin Scully on Twitter, but you can follow Joe Davis on Twitter at Joe underscore Davis. And you can watch him during the rest of the season and, and then full time next season. So, Joe, best of luck and thanks for coming on to talk to us. Enjoy it, guys. Anytime. Thank you. All right. So that will do it for this week. Thanks to Dan, thanks to Joe, thanks to Michael, and thanks to you, the listeners. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, savor those sweet sounds of Scully, and we will be back with a new episode of The Ringer MLD Show on Tuesday. 